Hello and welcome back to our podcast, the 13th podcast in this season, and we're trying to draw our thoughts together as we wrap up our discussion on covenants. My name's Cameron, very glad that I am here and that Ken is here and Locke, you're here. Luke's not here with us yet. Those who listened to our episode last week uh, would have benefited, I'm sure, from the insights of our special guest, um, Alexandra, who who danced in singing the, the Gingerbread Man. And our special guest this week is being put to bed at the moment, so Luke may join us soon. Now, Ken, while you uh, were not here last week, we had an idea that we were going to refer to you. We wanted uh, your comment on the question of how necessary was it for a new covenant to replace an old covenant? Because at various times, Paul seems to produce mixed messages on this. We, we came at something inconclusive. Do you have any thoughts on that topic? Well, I was interested. I think you might be referring, at least in part, to Galatians 3. Um, That's right, and, yeah. And um, one of the things that Paul says in Galatians 3, uh, verse 15, is just so, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. Um, uh, so, in essence, he's saying, well, you can't uh, replace the old covenant with a new one um it's because the old one still there you can't set it aside or replace it um as a matter of law uh it is true that the promisor can't revoke their own covenant uh it's binding um it is also true that they can be released from it by the person who benefits from the covenant so in that sense it can't be set aside by the person who made the promise because it remains binding on them. Um, uh, but it can be set aside by the person who would benefit from the promise. Um, uh, that doesn't necessarily answer the question that you asked. No, uh, but it does give me an interesting thought, Ken. If you were the the person to benefit from a covenant and then you became the the benefactor, no, Benefactor is the one who receives or gives. They're the one who gives. The benefactor, yes. So the one, if you if you were the recipient, the promisor and the promisee. Okay, promisee. If you were the promisee of a covenant, and the then you the recipient of the covenant, that is, yep. Right. Yeah. So if you and and then you received another covenant, you became the recipient of another covenant, which was perceived by you to be better, substantially. Then, then you would be um, there. Would be no cost. There'd be no loss to you to release the the promisor of the first covenant from the obligations of that, because you would say, in my perspective as the recipient of this, I feel like I've now received something which far surpasses it. And and I wonder if that's almost the sentiment that we feel in the New Testament. I I, I can see that there. Um, although I, I think what. Paul is also saying in Galatians, it seems to me, is that, well, there's not really a lot of difference um, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, they, they both come about as a result of a promise, which, of course, is what a covenant is, uh, and that that overarching promise is the same. Yeah, well, we, we came to a similar conclusion, Ken. We, we were not sure. Um, we, we thought that Paul was hedging his, bed, his bets a little bit. Um, well, he was a lawyer after all. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sometimes shows. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, the New Covenant is obviously what is to be occupying our attention now 
according at least to the lesson quarterly. And and this week's lesson is on um, the new covenant life. What what impact what this new covenant have on our life? I want to pick up on a theme we've referred to in the last two weeks, which is that God seems to be in the business of making these covenants. They seem to always be to the benefit of the people. They seem to be statements often of restraint. Uh, God is very powerful, but he says, I'm not going to destroy the whole earth. Uh, and uh, God says, I'm very powerful, but you don't have to sacrifice your kids to me. You do. A sheep is sufficient. Uh, it's what he says to Abraham, and that's then encoded in the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, mm. uh, they seem to be dispensations of God's grace, and they, they are statements of God's intention to help and not to harm. And it seems that one of the features of living under the new covenant is is we are to become God's agents in in propagating those attitudes through our own life to those around us. And as that thought came to me, it, I realised that yet again this was a, something that wasn't actually distinctive or new to the to the new covenant. And I, I thought of a, a couple of stories. One of the ones that I thought of was Abraham making covenants. And I, I looked it up. In Genesis 21, there's a point where um, one of the local rulers comes to Abraham and says, look, it's clear that God's with you in everything that you do. Swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. And so Abraham does. And that seems to me, as Abraham is in the position of power, um, is then making a statement of uh, fair dealing and intention to help and not to harm, um, restraint on the on the point of view of exercising his own powers to the benefit of this third party. Uh, it seems to me that Abraham is participating in this covenant-making process, but sort of imitating the way God has dealt with him. Mm. That takes on a powerful light, doesn't it, in the in the New Testament era when we have the the greater self-revelation of God through Jesus. Hmm. Which I think is what Paul was getting at in Galatians 3, um, where he referred to uh, what was the purpose of the law. It was added because of the transgressions until the seed, capital S, to whom the promise referred had come. Um, And uh, he refers to the fact that it's the seed, singular, uh, that but that's him. And, and so Christ is the centre. But he also says at times, Ken, that we are Christ's body, that Christ is the head of the church, and that uh, that our job is is to be Christ on earth. Uh, and um, part of that involves just, uh, you know, uh, engaging in this covenant-making process uh, to the benefit of, of those around us. Luke has now just joined us. So, Luke, we said that you might might join us as soon as our special feature guest from last week was put to put to bed so welcome thank you it's good to be here are there any other characters that you can think of in the old testament that that use their privileged status as a person blessed by god to then pass that on and particularly stories that draw out the notions of covenants uh there's one it's a little bit oblique Elijah and Elisha, um, there seems to be a sort of handing on or pa- a covenanting in that handover. It's not quite the same, Cam, as what you're describing, because it's really one person in a position of, if you like, power and privilege, um, commissioning their, their successor in a position of power and privilege. So it's a bit oblique and not perhaps quite so closely connected. 
the, the one that I'm thinking of, and it's, again, a troubling one in some ways, uh, it was when the Israelites went into Canaan and uh, I think, was it the Gibeonites who came yeah. and with their dressed up uh, and said, well, look, you know, don't harm us. And, and so they, uh, was it Joshua promised, anyway, the Israelite leaders yeah. promised and said, well, okay, we won't hurt you. Um, it appeared to be a benevolent act on their, on the part of the uh, Israelite leaders, uh, but God wasn't very happy about it. Um, Ken, that example ruins the whole theme I was trying to build up. No, I'm uh, sorry about that. <laughs> but you're right. That's why uh, I said it was troubling. <laughs> but the Israelites honour the covenant. True. Yeah. Even though the party, even though the party that made it, it was made without a, a full knowledge. Like there was, mm. there was a deceptive party involved. Well, it, it was um, an operative misrepresentation, uh, which would. Mm ordinarily uh, entitle the party um, making a promise based on that misrepresentation to have the uh, uh, contract avoided from the beginning. Um, mm. But they didn't seek to do that. That's interesting. Perhaps in contrast to that, we could consider the story of Ruth and Boaz. Mm. And both of them, in fact, in their own ways, um, because Ruth honours... Ruth to Naomi. Yeah, mm. Ruth honours her connection to Naomi, even though Ruth is not an Israelite and Naomi is not related to her, but mm. she she acts as her daughter in in every way, including adopting her, her religion and all of her customs, um, mm. and stays with her, presumably to, to care for her, because her sons are dead. Um, and then Boaz treats Ruth, who is a Hittite, woman uh, and out, he has no need to treat her a with, Moabite woman a Moabite sorry not a hit yeah he has no obligation to treat her as anything but uh, a, a foreigner who has no rights yeah within within their society and he he, he fulfills all of his obligations towards her mm-hmm. I, I particularly love the the story uh, where the the deal is done if you like um I think the sandals passed over, or however it's done, um, and 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 uh, Boaz sets this up as a very attractive deal for the um, uh, for the person who was obliged to uh, yeah. look after um, was it Naomi, and then and then um, uh, he he points out the down da- and the, the bloke gets all excited about it and thinks this is going to be fabulous and then he points out the downside to it and immediately says oh well no i'm I, i'm out <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm i'm backing out of this one so i thought boaz mm. played that beautifully <laughs> yes he went to considerable effort to to make sure that things played out the way that they did yeah but and legitimately yeah. played out yes yeah. and, and 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 did everything according to the rules but he didn't yeah. have to do any of that yeah. You know, he could have completely ignored Ruth's situation and Naomi's situation, and he would have not been he, he would have not been looked down on or or disrespected in any way for doing so. Mm. You know. Yeah. Now, um, in a similar vein, and in fact, dealing with the same family, I think we should turn to a story that deserves much closer attention. Ruth, the story of Ruth is recorded almost certainly because she featured in the genealogy of David. There must have been many people of faith whose stories we don't have recorded, but she she is recorded 
um, you know, her um, son was Jesse, wasn't it? And then Obed, Obed, Jesse, and then David. That's right. That's right. Obed, and then Jesse, and then David. So um, that would have been a story in David's family. David had some Moabite ancestry. Yes. Yeah. David had Moabite ancestry, and David himself is one who who makes covenants, and he makes a covenant with Jonathan. There's a passage in First Samuel 18, in 18 verse 3, isn't it? Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And uh, then later on, in chapter 20, uh, what was the verse you found, Ken? 20 verse 16. Jonathan reaffirms mm. the covenant. Yeah, but I think, I think David's is after that. Isn't it right before Saul and Jonathan die that David makes the promise to Jonathan? Ah, well, at the end of chapter 20, David says um, to Jonathan, Go in peace we, have, peace, we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants. And, and Jonathan is one of the first people in the household of Saul to recognise, certainly the only person to recognise with any sort of peace with the idea that, that David will be king. Saul's not happy with it. Jonathan is it seems to be content with this. And they enter a covenant. And David, of course, is very gracious to Saul. There's any number of stories we could look at there. The one I want to look at is where David decides to honour the covenant. Uh, this is after his king, after Saul and Jonathan are both dead. And uh, I think this is a passage we should read through in some detail. So I'll start us off from 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I, sh- to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Mm. 
Look, you were talking earlier about the fact that Boaz had, there's no expectation that, that Boaz would show kindness to Ruth. Mm. What would the expectations have been for a, for a new king? Oh, kill any potential threats. Yeah. And Absolutely. And particularly a new king that has so obviously been selected by divine decree. Yes, well, mm. a, a new a new king who has no um, no lineage to speak of. You know, the mm. lineage becomes significant because David is king. He doesn't become king because his lineage is significant, um, and he's not related to Saul in any way. So, by most um, rules of of hereditary leadership, he is an, a usurper. He's not a legitimate king even though you know you have those those events that we know about because they're written in the bible but would most israelites have known about that you know you know if 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 you have descendants of saul they could make a legitimate claim for the kingship and if they have supporters you could end with civil war so from a policy standpoint there's a very good reason why a new newly come to power ruler would aim to eliminate that possibility so David has every every right, well, not, I mean, it's murder, but you you have every reason to think that David would would want to get rid of any troublesome relatives of Saul. And that is, as you are about to share, Ken, there are many examples of that. Well, it happens time after time, and indeed right through uh, to Christ, um, with Herod uh, seeking to eliminate uh, a threat to his power. Um, I, I can only imagine what Zeba would be thinking when he was uh, called, summonsed uh, to uh, David. Um, and uh, you see the importance that he places in the response, uh, are you Zeba? And his response is, your servant. So I'm just making it very clear where my allegiance lies here. Um, uh, I, I, I know that you know that I was a servant of your predecessor uh, who you have usurped um, or deposed. Um, uh, but uh, let me make it very clear that uh, I'm, I'm here for you. Uh, and, uh, and, and the same with Mephibosheth. And, and Zeba must have been thinking when he had to go and get Mephibosheth uh, that, uh, well, this is David selecting uh, the last uh, of Saul's descendants to uh, uh, kill him and make sure he's no longer a threat. He was probably um, also thinking, if I'm not careful, David's just going to extend that to the servants because yeah. because why not be doubly sure? It's certainly the case that Mephibosheth expects it. Because well, quite the first so. Thing, first Do thing not David be says afraid. Is, Don't be afraid, yeah. Yeah, even though David has actually declared his intentions fairly early on, because he says, he says to Ziba, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Oh, yes, but, but the but, kindness but of God not trusting could, could that. A... Ziba's not trusting that any more than uh, the wise men trusted Herod about what he said to, to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God is so kind to this man, I am going to send him to God. (laughs) This story is interesting at lots of levels. Uh, One of them is the sequel, which is very unfortunate, because Mephibosheth does make a bid for the throne. I don't remember that. And it's it's a part of the story that we talk about less often. We might look at it later on. 
Um, it is when David is at a very um, vulnerable moment. In other words, there's an interesting contrast here. Uh, David has at his power someone who is vulnerable and chooses to extend to him grace. Doubly vulnerable, Cam, or triply so. Uh, the story goes to multiple extents to point out that Mephibosheth is crippled. Mm. It says it right at the start, and it drills it home at the very end of, of 2 Samuel 9 as a kind of repetition, almost as an afterthought. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. We know that, because they said it just a few verses earlier. The The... There seems to be some sense in which his vulnerability is being emphasised in this chapter. Mm. Yeah, and and he's vulnerable in other ways, Locke. He's vulnerable because he's lost his land. Mm. Well, I wanted to point that out. The We talked about the feature, you know, many times we talked about the way the land featured in the covenants made to Abraham and to Isaac. and And here... The word covenant, in my translation, is not used in Second Samuel 9, but there is a promise of kindness, there is an instruction not to fear, and there is a promise that of the restoration of all the land. That's super closely echoing some of the covenants that God makes with the, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what's, what's interesting is... Um is that not only is Mephibosheth without land, he's living in a place called Lodabar. And the translation of that is literally nothing. No thing, no word, nothing. He's living. A sort of direct translation into English idiom would be uh, he's living in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, perhaps in hiding? Almost, Almost certainly in hiding. In fact, he was rushed from... As soon as it was found that Saul had died, he was rushed from the... That's why he was crippled, is he was dropped in the escape. So hmm. so he's been in hiding all his life. He was crippled as an infant. And he's got this reminder, a physical reminder every day of his life, that he is a wanted person. So you, you can imagine that, that that left, you know, some very deep vulnerabilities um, mm. in his character. Mm. And he, he certainly sees um, bad things coming when he's called before David and he's, he's completely taken by surprise when David extends grace to him. The passage I was thinking of that I referred to, Luke, is in... Um, mm, I'm just looking Over in chapter now. 16. 16 and, and 17. After Absalom, after Absalom tries to take the throne and there's some instability within the... the, the um, what's the lineage of David? The, this, this idea of David's kingdom and his kingdom passing to his kids seems to be in some jeopardy because there's some contest over the throne. And the king is out... Um, Absalom has has conspired to take over the throne and Ziba comes to the king and Ziba says, I've got all these donkeys with bread and food. And the king says, well, where's Mephibosheth? David seems to expect that Mephibosheth would choose to exile himself with David. Mm. And Ziba says, well, he's back in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. So he wasn't happy with being given back what belonged to the family of Saul, he wanted the entire kingdom. I wonder well, that's why he Zeb... thought he would get it out of... I wonder why he thought he would take it from Absalom. Um, well, it's it, 
we only have Zebra's word for this, Ken. Zebra threw Mephibosheth under the bus, well and truly. Yes, he did, and, and he got the benefit the way, of that. He got the benefit. <laughs> he got all the land, and um, that. But the way the story is written suggests that that Z- the sympathy of the narrative writer is with Zebra. There is an inference that Zebra was in the right in the mm. way the story plays out, mm. and Zebra, Zebra. Zeba is quite supportive of David at a time when supporting David could come at huge personal cost. Zeba has already mm. been in the situation of being affiliated with a deposed king. Mm. And he's mm. voluntarily and, and putting himself lucky. back he's voluntarily putting himself back in that position. So So Zeba is a bit of a hero of the story. Mm. In in a sense, he's 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 almost like Mephibosheth in that because he was a servant of Saul, and they were presumably his situation after Saul's Saul and Jonathan's deaths was not good either. And then mm. he was put in charge, you know, because his his master lost all the land. So he was servant to a master who had no land. And then David gave Mithibosheth back Saul's lands, but he also gave Zeba back his position as the sort of chief administrator of those lands. So in a sense mm. he was giving them both grace. It's not only it's not only that Zeba was working for Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth was crippled. Mephibosheth wasn't out walking the fields. And in fact Mephibosheth mm. was staying in Jerusalem eating at the king's table. Not only Zeba was sort of managing it for Mephibosheth, he he would have had near total control in practical terms of what was going mm. on. Hmm. So what I, what I was going to finish with was that Z- Zeba repays David with loyalty, but unfortunately Mephibosheth does not. So I hear something here, Cam, just tying this back to, to where you launched into this story. Uh, Mephibosheth is a fascinating character here, and um, as the story unfolds, it appears that he has some some deficiencies, perhaps, as a character. But really, our attention at the moment is is drawn to David, who is the one who has established a covenant of protection and restoration with a person who he would be expected to deal with quite the opposite way. So he, David is in a position of power in the chapter 9 that we, verse, that, that we read, and he gives a covenant, a promise of self self-imposed restrictions or limitations on the power that he has at his disposal for the benefit of the vulnerable person. And what I hear you saying, Cam, is that attitude, that life, is what we are called to. If we're agents of God's kingdom, as inaugurated by Jesus, then, then I mean, Jesus lived a life of self-sacrifice. That rolls off the tongue very easily because we hear it and say it so often. But you're suggesting that part of that aid, part of that kingdom life is being God's representatives in the way we establish covenants of God's kind with people around us. I think I think that we ought to be gracious even when it hurts us a lot. Now I'll give some sorts of examples uh, where this might be necessary. At various times I've belong to churches and maybe unwittingly I've participated in these things you try and be the best Christian you can 
Um, and perhaps I'm not the best judge of whether I've succeeded on, or not. But I've belonged to churches where there have been fairly fierce debates over things like what what colour the carpet should be or um, or what designs and motifs should be displayed on the wall or uh, in the Adventist church there's been some fairly fierce debates about people who hold certain doctrinal views and there's it's not just a question of right or wrong there's a lot of personal involvement and to give way feels is a it's a self-sacrifice mm. uh but and and another example i'm finding teaching quite hard at the moment and uh it is a general fact that students by and large do not care about learning things it's the only business model where someone has paid for the product and then requires an enormous amount of convincing to even get them to acknowledge that they might want it <laughs> well yeah, it's the it's it's usually the parent that's paid for the product, but the recipient of the product is the one that needs persuading. I sh- I'm sure as a maths teacher, Cam, you'd get uh, yes, but when am I ever going to use this? Uh- yes, and we put a we put a sketch on for the staff meeting a year and a half ago. I, I scripted one out after hearing these complaints um, a lot. I, we put a, a sketch on for the end of year Christmas party at the staff room, which was very well received. Where, where I took all the common excuses and statements of that kind um, that I received in the maths class and transferred them to the context of a sex ed class. <laughs> and um, it was, there was a beautiful, beautiful, oh, I'm never going to need this, I'm going to be an architect when I grow up, which is, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is a statement, Luke, as someone who studied architecture, that someone actually said to me in a maths class. Oh, uh, I believe it. Yes, I don't want to be the one to burst their bubble, but architects use a lot of maths. <laughs> you need to know it. <laughs> and um, so anyway, I, I, I'm struggling with this at the moment because basically I've, I find my job very hard because it takes a lot out of me. Mm. Um, one of the problems is that I, I don't, I, I I think if I'm to take the gospel seriously and and the the statements made about God's dealings with us seriously, then a life where you are giving lots, even if it's not being received well, it is a is a God like life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm finding it very hard at the moment to try and work out what is an acceptable balance. Um, you know, there's a common statement you hear it a thousand times a day. You've got to look after yourself. You've got to look after yourself. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure if that's consistent with the Christian message, mind you. In Adventism, we have a health message, and we talk about physical health and mental health and how they help spiritual health. So there's uh, maybe we are obligated to look after ourselves. David's not looking after himself in this story, so I'm not sure mm. where the balance lies. Perhaps our readers can can enlighten me. There is there is one place where Christ states. I was going to say explicitly. He doesn't state it explicitly. He states it in a parable. But he states the the exact concept that I think we're trying to get to. And that is in Matthew 18. And this perhaps might serve as a conclusion uh, to our 13 weeks on covenants. And as a summary of what ought our response be as as people who benefit under the new covenant. And uh, I'm looking at Matthew 18. And I might start reading from verse 21. 
Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him, which was an impossible level of debt. A talent was like a year's wages, or, you know, this is, this is unpayable debt. Uh, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. In other words, to be tortured till he dies. Just putting that out there. <laughs> and we say, and we, and, and we, uh, we, uh, we, we say that uh, there is no uh, eternal, fiery, torturing hell. But yeah, Lachlan, you've got to read verse thirty-five. Yeah, this is <laughs> how my heavenly father will treat for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I mean, it says it there. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Okay, unexpected can of worms at the end. <laughs> not that unexpected. I think. I think, in some sense, it's not unexpected. We've talked about about the power of words, and we've explored parts of the Bible that say an important message by, if anything, exaggerating things. And and I will point out, Luke, that your your comment about the torture is extra biblical. Although I can absolutely see where you're coming from, but the 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 thought that occurs to me is just that the emphasis of this story in Matthew 18 is super clear, isn't it? And Cam, I think it does speak to the exactly to the point that you're saying. Um, it's it's a vivid and and evocative call to be the kind of people who pass on the blessing. That was the key element of Abraham's calling and the covenant God made with him. And it's exactly the same for people that, that aspire to live as agents of God's kingdom. And look, I, I think I can actually help deal with that can of worms slightly by going back to the story of David, okay? Because at the end of, at the end of Matthew um, 1835, you know, it, it, it says, 1834-35, um, that, you know, you will be treated badly unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Um, which I think is where the emphasis is, um, mm. forgiving from your heart. And this story, of course, starts with Peter attempting to um, uh, demonstrate his virtue uh, by offering to forgive seven times. And Jesus effectively says, no, you're, uh, you're, just, you're supposed to forgive as many times as you need to forgive. Um, mm. So, you know, when you talk about what God wants of us, it's, it's, the punishment is not the point being emphasized. It's the he wants forgiveness. He wants us to forgive each other. And David is often described as 
you know, famously described as a man after God's own heart. And I think we can actually see a really good illustration of this principle, 70 times 7, or what have you, and this parable, if we go back and look at the end of the story of David and Mephibosheth. Because I've been reading through the rest of it, Cam. Because it struck me as a bit weird that Mephibosheth betrays David. And so if we go right to the end of that story, after Absalom is killed and the civil war is resolved and David returns to Israel, all of his essentially enemies, the people who didn't support him, effectively come to beg forgiveness. Um, So if you're looking in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 16, I wonder if we can read that. Do we have time to read through 16 to 30? (laughs) <laughs> we need another 13 weeks. Okay. <laughs> this um, might be a good point to end on, actually, because this is okay. really, really illustrative. Yep. So David's returning. Where was, is this 2 Samuel 19? Uh, yes. 19 verses 16 to 30. Yeah. And he's coming back into Jerusalem. Yes. That's the context after after his yeah. one... Oh, and let, let me set this, this up as well, because we didn't read this bit. The first person referred to, which is Shimei... He is somebody who, when David was in exile and running for his life, he was a relative of Saul, and he cursed and threw stones at David. And mm-hmm. and David's men asked him, should we not put this, this asshole to death? <laughs> I'm paraphrasing a bit. I believe oh. they said dead dog. I think that translates quite well across cultures. Um, they said, should, should we not put this guy to death? And David said, I have no quarrel with him. I don't want to kill him. But nonetheless, he, mm-hmm. you know, he was an enemy of David. He cursed him. Uh, he supported Absalom or, or Mephibosheth or some, anyone who wasn't David. Um, and now he comes to David after David is victorious to beg forgiveness. I'll pick it up. Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Zeba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei son of Gera crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruai, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes, from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my... He's talking about um, uh, Zeba here. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Zeba shall divide the land. 
And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. I stand corrected on on mm. Mephibosheth's character. Yeah, it's a yeah. nice thing to find. <laughs> and 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 Zebra is, is comes across not so well uh, in this end bit. But the key point is that that David forgives all of them mm. again. Yeah, and I am. Yeah, very much. And I'm reminded, his wording is very reminiscent, isn't it, of the Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, I shall not remember their sins. Mm. Uh, You know, we explored that and the way that that was picked up in the New Testament by the writers who were trying to make sense of how they would live in the world after experiencing Jesus. So, yeah, this, this little exploration of the story of David and Mephibosheth really has, I think, tied this whole quarter up really nicely. We, we are in the moment deliberating what we'll do next uh, next quarter. We have, for the last few quarters, kept our discussions fairly close to the sub-school quarterly. Our podcast didn't start that way. Those of you who've, who have listened to our first season, and any anyone is welcome to go back and, and find the, our older episodes. Our first season was on the Psalms uh, because we wanted to talk about them. And... Uh, and we'd be interested to know what you use this podcast for. If you use this podcast to prepare for the Sabbath school lesson discussion on, on Sabbath morning, then that gives us you know, perhaps further impetus and reason to, to stick closely to the quarterly. Uh, if you don't mind so much, we'd, we'd love to hear from you to know that so that we can decide what we'll be doing. Any thoughts, any questions, any feedback, please send it to us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And we look very forward. Uh, we look forward very much to hearing from you and to you joining us again next week as we embark on a new topic uh, for a new thirteen weeks. Mm-hmm.